So good morning once again. If we can uh, bring your conversations to a close and uh, please do feel free to continue those um, at the end. So we are continuing our um, sermon series this morning in the book of Acts called The Unstoppable Gospel as we continue to look at the story of the spread of the gospel in the ancient world and also its implications and relevance for each of us. Uh, for the last two weeks, you may remember, we've been looking at Paul's first missionary journey, uh, where he was basically taking the gospel to many new areas. And we've seen over the last couple of weeks that many Gentiles or non-Jews have actually become Christians. So you may remember places like uh, Lystra and Iconium and uh, Pisidian Antioch that uh, many Gentiles or non-Jews had become Christians as well as Jews. And that really provides the background for our reading this morning, which, uh, as you will immediately see, fills up a very important question, which is, is it enough for these Gentiles simply to believe in Jesus, or do they also need to become Jews as well? Uh, so that might be a helpful question for you to hold in your uh, minds. This is a question that we will see gets right to the heart of what Christians believe. And uh, so with this question in mind, I'm going to ask Eliza um, if she would um, come up now and uh, bring our reading for us. Thanks, Eliza. Today's passage is from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 35. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. 
Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabas and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth that we are what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Well, thank you very much, Elisa. So a number of you will know that uh, for a little while in the early 2000s, uh, I was assistant pastor of a church in Edinburgh in Scotland. And there was one evening there where I was walking home uh, after a particularly late meeting. I had to walk through a sort of area of um, parkland in the middle of Edinburgh, which is called the Meadows. Um, you can see a little picture of it um, there, um, I guess. Um, some of you may know it. It was really dark and there was no one about and after a little while I managed to spot two well-built young men sort of hanging about on the path ahead of me. Uh, I was pretty scared, there was no one else about, it was late and dark, but I decided I would keep on walking anyway um, and rather than risk drawing attention to myself by changing direction. Uh, they both had shaved heads and one of them I remember was a really um, large guy uh, wearing a leather jacket. When I got close to them, uh, one of them uh, stepped out directly uh, in front of my path and he said, excuse me, would you like to come to a Bible study? <laughs> well, mercifully, 
As it turned out, I was not in danger of being physically mugged, but I was actually in danger of being spiritually mugged. And uh, I will uh, explain the uh, reasons um, for that later on. Well, in many ways, the believers in Antioch in our passage this morning were in exactly the same situation. Uh, They had come to believe in Jesus, but now they were in danger of being spiritually mugged by those who were trying to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is a very important passage for us to be looking at this one. This is right at the heart of the book of Acts. This is right in the um, middle of Acts. So uh, well done. Uh, You guys have made it halfway. Uh, It is an account of what's come to be known as the Council of Jerusalem. It was a crucial moment in the history of the early church um, when the gospel was under threat. So this is an important passage for us. And as we will see, my prayer this morning is that this will really help us to guard the gospel ourselves. And it will so therefore help us uh, to not be um, spiritually mugged. And it will also help us, as we will see, to keep on loving other Christians. So then I've put three headings uh, there on your notice sheets that will help us to uh, walk through this this morning. And the first of them are called The Crisis. So let's uh, look briefly at the crisis that was taking place um, in the church in Antioch. So we're told from the last verse of chapter 14 that Paul and Barnabas were spending a long time in Antioch. And then we read in chapter 15, verse 1, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now we aren't told exactly uh, who these people were, but that they were obviously very influential. Um, But we are told clearly what they were teaching. They were saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Uh, We see a a, um, similar thing, the same attitude now we're in Jerusalem, there in chapter 15, verse 5, uh, where we read, Then some of the believers who who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And so if we put these two pieces of evidence together, what we can basically see is that there was a group of Jewish Christians who were teaching that you needed to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. It wasn't enough just to believe in Jesus. You also needed to obey the law of Moses uh, as well and also be circumcised. To be saved, of course, means to be saved from your sin and saved from God's judgment against you. And so these Jewish Christians were teaching that in order to be saved, in order to be made right with God, you didn't just need to believe in Jesus, but you also needed to become Jewish. Uh, You needed to keep kosher. You needed to abstain from certain foods. Um, You needed to undergo all of the um, cleanliness rituals uh, in the Old Testament law. You needed to observe the special feasts and the special holy days that we read about in the Old Testament. They were basically saying that salvation wasn't through Jesus alone, but rather it was Jesus and. Jesus and circumcision. Jesus and the law of Moses. Jesus and the cleanliness rituals. And on we go. And so this is actually a really important question. In some ways, once you start thinking about it, it's the most important question of all. If we believe that God exists, then surely the next question that we need to ask is, well, how can I know him? How can I be made right with God? 
And it's really that question, therefore, that is right at the heart of the debate here. Am I made right with God by trusting in Jesus alone? Or do I also need to do some other things as well, like um, trying to obey the law of Moses? And it's very easy for us, really, to see why this was a big deal uh, for many of the Jewish Christians. Uh, if we put ourselves in the shoes of the Jewish Christians for a moment, they had basically been steeped in the Old Testament law. Uh, they knew that God had commanded his people to be um, circumcised since the, the time of Abraham, approximately 2,000 years previously. This was what marked them out as the people of God in a profound way. And so wasn't it just really obvious that these new Gentile believers needed to become Jews if they also wanted to be God's people and declared right with him? And so there's a huge amount at stake in this debate. In many ways, it cuts right at the heart of Christianity and what Christians believe. What message was it that the Christians actually believed? And what message would these Christians actually preach? Would they preach that Jesus' death alone was sufficient to forgive sins? Or do we need to add something to that, like keeping the law of Moses? And so we read there in verse 2 that all of this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with these Jewish teachers. And eventually things get so bad that everyone needs to go off to Jerusalem for the apostles and elders to try and resolve this question. And so this was a major crisis. And I think there's some important um, application here for us, which is that some arguments are worth having. Okay? Some arguments are worth having, especially when they are about the core of the gospel. Now, it's true, of course, that sometimes Christians have divided and split over the stupidest things. Um, and so for some of you here, this is maybe one reason why you're just really reluctant to get involved in church. Uh, maybe you used to be part of a church previously, but there were all kinds of splits and divisions, uh, and you ended up leaving. And now your attitude is, well, I'm happy to go along to a church. I kind of see that's important. And I go to listen. I go to meet people. I maybe even give financially. Uh, but there's no way ever that I would actually want to get actively involved again. Or maybe someone here is someone who isn't a Christian. And you're thinking, well, this is actually one of the main reasons why I don't even want to become a Christian. Why would I want to be part of something that just has so many splits and divisions in it, uh, most of which I don't even understand? But this passage reminds us that some arguments are worth having. And one of them is the question that the church was facing here. What is the nature of the gospel? How are we made right with God? Is it just Jesus? Is it Jesus alone? Or do I also need something else as well? That's actually an important question that is worth arguing about. And so this is really the crisis that the church faced here. But then how did they resolve this? And this moves us on to look at the council. And we see this from verse 6 down to verse 18, where we have a description of what has come to be known as the Council of Jerusalem. It was basically a meeting of uh, the Christians in Jerusalem. And remember that they are meeting to resolve this question of what the gospel is. And we'll see that Luke gives us an account of the three main speeches that were, were Given. He's obviously not giving us uh, every word, uh, rather he's kind of giving us the executive summary of the uh, main arguments. So if you look at it, we have a speech by Peter from verse 7 to 11. 
Peter, of course, was a disciple of Jesus and one of the leaders in the early church. Um, then we've just got one uh, verse covering Paul and Barnabas and what they said there in verse 12, where they're basically given an account of the miracles that God had performed among the Gentiles uh, at the time of their first missionary journey. And then we've got a speech by James from verse 13 down to verse 18. Uh, James was probably the half-brother of Jesus and uh, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And his argument is basically that the inclusion of the Gentiles had been prophesied in the Old Testament and that had been part of God's plan all along. So then those are the three speeches. Uh, so let's look at them each in a little bit more detail and uh, see how each of them um, contributes to this whole question of clarifying the gospel. And so first of all, we have Peter's speech. And the main point of Peter's speech, I think, is that both Jews and Gentiles are saved by grace. Both Jews and Gentiles are saved by grace. So Peter begins by referring back to his experience at Cornelius' house back in Acts chapter 10. You may remember that. Uh, you may remember how God had spoken to Peter and he had told him to go and preach the gospel to Cornelius, who you might rem remember was a Roman and was a Gentile. Uh, Peter o o obeyed and then right while he was in the middle of preaching about Jesus and his death, and resurrection, the Holy Spirit fell on the whole group and many Gentiles were saved. And so Peter's point here is that both Jews and Gentiles are saved in this, the same way, through God's grace and not by what's called works of the law. So verse 8, Peter says, God accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. Then verse 9, he did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Then we really come to his main point there in verse 11. No, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So can you see how Peter's saying that the way that God works and saves both Jews and Gentiles is exactly the same in both cases. Both groups are only ever saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, not by works of the law. Grace, of course, simply means unmerited favour, we are naturally unworthy of salvation and only deserving of God's wrath. But yet in his great grace, God has reached down and has given us what none of us deserve. Uh, saying salvation is a gift of God. There's nothing we can do to earn it, uh, as Peter makes clear in verse 10, when he says, Now then, why do you try to test God? Literally, why do you try to provoke God? by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we, referring to the Jews or our ancestors, have never been able to bear. So in this verse, Peter describes the law of Moses basically as a yoke. That's what he's uh, referring to there when he speaks about putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that uh, neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. You can see what a yoke is there on the screen. Um, it's a heavy piece of wood that would have sort of been laid across the backs of two animals uh, and then attached to a cart or a plow for them to pull. In the Bible, a yoke, therefore, is often used as a picture of, as a picture of slavery. You may have heard the expression, a yoke of slavery. And so here, Peter's saying that this is what the law of Moses is like. So on the one hand, God's law is good because it reveals something of God's character and God's ways. But yet on the other hand, it's also a heavy burden to bear. It's like a yoke because none of us can ever keep it. As Peter says, hey, even the Jews can't keep their own law. 
So why provoke God? Why test God by placing it on the backs of Gentiles as well? Rather, he says, salvation can only come about through the grace of Jesus Christ, the one who has taken the yoke of the law, the one who has fulfilled the requirements of the law for us. Uh, He's taken it on himself so that we can be redeemed. So we often say salvation is by what? It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And that's exactly what Peter's talking about here. Both Jew and Gentile are only ever saved by God's grace, uh, not by the law. Um, I was reading recently that apparently the musician Billy Joel um, never ever sells tickets to the first few rows of his concerts. And apparently the reason he gives is is because after his long career, he just got so fed up of looking at bored rich people in the first few rows. And so what he does now is he leaves the tickets in the first few rows unbooked, and then right before the concert, he gets some of his crew to go out into the audience and gets all the people from the worst seats in the entire concert hall, and he brings them right down to the very front, and he seats them in the first few rows. And of course, they love being there, and they're filled with uh, enthusiasm um, for the whole concert. Well, I thought that's just a wonderful illustration of God's grace, isn't it? Uh, We're naturally those who are in the worst seats in the whole house. In actual fact, when it comes to the gospel, we aren't even in the concert hall at all. Uh, We're naturally under God's wrath and condemnation. But yet solely because of his amazing grace, um, God sent his crew to come and get us in the person of Christ. And he's now seated us in the very best seats in the entire house right on the very front row of God's plans and purposes in the world and filled with every spiritual blessing in Christ, as Ephesians tells us. And that's how we are rescued. That's how we're saved. We're only ever saved by grace. So why provoke God? Why test God by returning to works of the law? Then we see the next speech, which is provided by Paul and Barnabas, in verse 12. Uh, We read that the whole assembly becomes quiet, as Paul and Barnabas tell them about the miracles that God has performed among the Gentiles through them. And really, I think the main point there is that God has worked among the Gentiles without the Gentiles needing to be circumcised or obey the law of uh, Moses. And therefore, the law of Moses being um, circumcised is not necessary. And then we come to the um, speech by James in verse um, 13 to 18. And really here, the main point is that God had always planned to include the Jews and Gentiles together as one people of God. That was all, always God's uh, plans and purposes in Christ uh, right from the earliest days. And uh, he quotes from the Old Testament prophecy of Amos to prove it. And so if we put all of these things together, uh, there's really one big lesson for us, which is that we must not add anything to the gospel. We must not add anything to the gospel. Remember, the gospel is not Jesus and. So it's not Jesus and the law of Moses, or Jesus and baptism, or Jesus and circumcision, or Jesus and anything else. Rather, it's the gospel of grace. It's Jesus alone not Jesus and, uh, just Jesus' death on the cross for us. And by personally trusting in that, that's the only way that we can be made right with God. 
And this is something, of course, that's made really clear elsewhere in the New Testament. So just I think about these well-known um, verses from Paul in the book of Romans. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to who? To all who, who believe. Therefore, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are freely justified by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. It's impossible to miss the force of what Paul's saying there. Nobody can ever be saved through the law by works. Rather, both Jew and Gentile are only ever saved by God's grace and the redemption that comes through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so we must never add man-made additions to the gospel. What kinds of things, though, might we be tempted to add to the gospel? Uh, probably no one has ever tried to say to you, well, you need to believe in Jesus and you need to keep the law of uh, Moses. Um, that's not a particularly big one these days. Now, so what kinds of things might we be tempted to add to the gospel? Well, here's a few. Uh, one common one you may have heard is Jesus plus baptism. In order to be saved, we don't just need Jesus and his death, we also need to be baptised. Uh, that was actually the case with the story that I started off with this morning. Those two men that came to speak to me uh, when I thought I was uh, about to get mugged, um, they were from something called the International Church of Christ, a group which is currently very, very active uh, here in Hong Kong, uh, especially on university campuses. And they teach that you don't just need to believe in Jesus, you also need to be baptised in their particular church to be saved. It's Jesus plus baptism. Now, baptism is a great thing. And if you are a Christian and you have not been baptised, then I certainly believe that you ought to be. But we must never, ever add baptism to the gospel. Baptism is not something that contributes to our standing with God. Or you may have heard some other ones. You may have heard Jesus plus tongues. Sometimes in some more extreme charismatic churches, they teach that in order to be a Christian, you don't just need Jesus, you also need to speak in tongues. And then, of course, one very well-known one indeed, I know that many of you here were raised in the Roman Catholic Church. And according to official Catholic teaching, you don't just need to believe in Jesus to be saved, you actually need lots of other things as well. You need to do good works, you need the sacraments, you need to go to... Con you need the last rites and you can actually only really be sure and confident of being accepted by God if you've done all of those other things as well and so hopefully you can see that what we actually see here is really important and really relevant for each of us you see there's always this danger of adding things to the gospel of being a sort of Jesus and rather than Jesus alone but Peter reminds us here that the gospel message is Jesus alone. Remember, uh, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Maybe a slightly different way of approaching this question for those of us who are Christians maybe and are regular attenders of the church here would be to ask ourselves, well, what impression do you think people who aren't Christians have of our church? What impression do you think people who aren't Christians have of our church? Um, do you think it would be obvious to them that the message is Jesus alone? 
or do we sort of maybe even inadvertently give the impression that you need Jesus plus you need to adopt a specific culture or you need to clean your act up um, first and uh, only then are you actually worthy to be saved or maybe if we are Christians we can be those that believe in Jesus on paper we have believed in Jesus but yet in terms of how we're actually living our lives functionally now we tend to be distracted and tend to look at other things uh, to get our sense of um, value and worth and acceptance with God instead. Uh, so certainly trusted in Jesus for salvation, but yet when it comes to practically how we live and how we think of our standing before God, it's things like, well, it's really Jesus plus my Bible reading or Jesus plus my financial giving or Jesus plus the fact that I'm respectable. I don't visit those particular places. I don't uh, struggle with those particular sins, perhaps. And these are the things that on a week-by-week -week basis that we actually look for our standing with God instead. And one of the problems with that, of course, is that we lose joy. When we look to our works functionally for our standing with God, we just lose the joy of being in the front row or those great seats at the concert. It's almost as if we were trying to sort of repay Billy Joel uh, for the cost of our ticket. And so we lose the joy, we lose the wonder of the gospel and all that Jesus has done for us on the, the cross. And so one of the messages of this for us is maybe, well, don't lapse back into looking to your performance um, to get your sense of acceptance and a right relationship with God. Don't lapse back into thinking that it all depends about your performance as a good parent or as a really faithful employee uh, or a good Christian or whatever it might be for you. That's not the basis of your standing before God. It's only ever and only by God's grace. As we'll sing later on, I approach the throne of glory. Nothing in my hand I bring, but the promise of acceptance from a good and gracious king. And so whether you are a Christian who's really struggling this morning, as I know many of us will be, or whether you are a Christian who is doing great in the Christian life, it's exactly the same. Our acceptance before God is based on Jesus alone and not on our performance. I wonder, have you grasped that truth for yourself? However, we need to move on. So we've looked at the crisis and we've looked at the council. And then last of all, more briefly, uh, we also need to come to look at what I've called the communication so we can see the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council there in verse 19 and 21. So this is still James speaking. And James says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And so we see a couple of things here. And first of all, we see the need for truth. So James's conclusion is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God, meaning that the Gentile Christians should not be made to be circumcised or to have to obey the law of Moses. As we've just seen, this is in line with the truth of the gospel, that we are saved by grace, not by works. But then we also see here the need for love. And we can see this, particularly in verse um, 20 and 21. And uh, these verses might strike you as a little bit un. Unusual. Uh, after all, it seems like the council has just concluded that the Gentiles don't need to obey religious rules, but yet in the very next breath, it's kind of saying that they actually do. Um, so what's going on? 
Well, I think the big difference here is motivation. Um, previously, it was clear that the Gentiles were not to obey the law of Moses for salvation, but here, that is more appealing to the motivation of, of love. Uh, it's now talking about how Jewish and the Gentile Christians, Jewish and Gentile believers, are to relate well together, and so the principle is love. Now that Jews and Gentiles are Christians, they're all part of one body, united in Christ. What kind of attitude do we need? Um, how can Jews and Gentiles relate to each other in love? And part of the answer that the council gave was that the Gentile Christians were to put their preferences on one side and not cause needless offence to those from a Jewish background who are Christians. Now, you can see some of the things are there. We should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now, there's a lot of debate about exactly what is meant by all the different activities which are mentioned here, especially, I should warn you, what is meant by sexual immorality in this context, which is obviously something the Christian should always avoid and uh, is never an option for the Christian. However, I think what is clear, and the point we're meant to take away, is that all of these are things that would cause offence to a Jewish Christian, and therefore the Gentile believers ought to steer well clear. So the principle for us is that we are to be tough and strong when it comes to defending the gospel, but we're to be flexible and loving when it comes to loving and caring for other Christians. So what are some of the areas then where we may need to lay out our preferences on one side out of love? Uh, well, one example that's clearly analogous to what we have here would be with Christians from a different cultural background who maybe have scruples about something like drinking alcohol or eating pork, perhaps. And we ought to be willing to lay the freedom that we have on one side um, out of love. But there's also lots of other examples that we can probably think of as well. We can think about worship styles or what day of the week your small group meets, uh, something as small and as mundane as that maybe, that we've got a strong preference about, or maybe going to a particular place that would make some of your friends uh, who are Christians feel uncomfortable. All of those might be areas where uh, what we are called to do is lay out our preferences on one side out of love for other Christians, uh, which is exactly what we see the Gentile Christians doing here. Um, and so the council decide to write a letter to the Gentile Christians. You, you can read it there in verse 24 to 29. And then they send this letter back with Paul and Barnabas uh, and a few others so that they could communicate clearly um, what has been decided. We then get the results in verse 13 and 31. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. And so this reminds us I think that a church that is clear on the gospel will be a rejoicing church. The people read it and they were glad. They were really glad for its encouraging message. If we are clear on the gospel here at Ambassador, then that will lead to joy. Being clear on the gospel guards us against false teaching and keeps us united. Being clear on the gospel stops us being burdened by false guilt and legalism. Being clear on the gospel stops us from being blown about by every wind which comes blowing round the corner. Being clear on the gospel helps keep us outward looking and focused on reaching those around us with the message about Jesus. And so being clear on the gospel is really vitally important. This is one reason why we repeat the gospel so often in our preaching. 
Uh, we want to be restating the gospel clearly and regularly because we know it's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. It's why we will take communion as a church next week where we eat and drink. Why? To remind ourselves regularly of the gospel. It's why we rejoice to see people baptised. Baptism is a picture of the gospel as someone is immersed in water and then rises again as a picture of their new life in Christ. And so I hope that as a church we are clear on the gospel. Uh, are you clear on the gospel? And if you are, are you rejoicing in God's grace? To really be rejoicing about being on the front row of the concert and uh, all that Jesus has done for us. Well, there's once a man called John Newton and he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. And he once said that Christians were to be like iron pillars when it came to the gospel. They were to be steadfast and immovable in their convictions. But when it came to love, they were to be flexible like reeds, to be willing to bend and be flexible and mold themselves to the, to the needs of others, not necessarily causing offense. It's really a great summary of Acts 15 here. You see that Christians are to be like iron pillars, not compromising when the gospel was under threat, but standing courageously for it. But yet we are um, also to be like reeds, or I guess if I was to translate it here for Hong Kong, we should be like bamboo. Um, we should be flexible when it comes to our love for each other, being loving and flexible and doing all that, that we can to love other Christians and to preserve the unity of the church. And so I'd like to leave these two images um, for you there this morning. So you can see on the left-hand side of the screen, they're one of the uh, stone pillars there on the waterfront at Stanley. And there on the right-hand side, we have a bamboo grove. I think this one's a place called the Taipo Bamboo Tunnel, which I hadn't actually heard of, but um, um, there we go. That's somewhere exciting for you to go um, this coming week. And really think about these two uh, pictures and uh, maybe what we need to learn from them this morning. When it comes to the truth of the gospel, are we like a stone pillar which is standing firm? And when it comes to love, especially loving other Christians in this church, are we like bamboo, being flexible and being willing to bend and doing all that we can to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give thanks for the council in Jerusalem that clarifies so clearly that we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus and not by being circumcised or obeying the law of Moses. We give thanks that Jesus has indeed redeemed us by his blood and he has taken the yoke of the law in our place on the cross. We pray that you would help us to guard the, the gospel and to be loving in our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we ask all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.